So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13. So just as a way of setting the stage for this passage before we read it, uh, in a world full of problems, with problems just everywhere, people, like us, are always searching for solutions to these problems. Now, some problems are very easy to solve. doesn't take much to get them done. Others cannot ever be perfectly solved in this world. But the ones that forever frustrate us and make us want to pull our hair out are the problems that lie somewhere in between those two extremes. So most problems seem to be in this middle area, this kind of gray area of problems. And often the most frustrating ones are the ones that appear to have an easy solution. But then you go and try to fix that problem with a solution, and then you quickly realize that you're not up to the task. And this problem is much harder than you thought it was. Instead, your fix, your solution, ends up being kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. You ever heard that expression? Uh, That idea. And more often than not, this fix ends up making things far worse than your initial situation. Now, at that point of failure, we often have uh, a couple options. We can storm off in a rage and maybe come back later with another plan and a calm mind. We can call a handy neighbor, a handy friend, a parent, or an adult child. Or we can hire a professional to try to solve the problem. But the lesson in all of that is that we often trust way too much in ourselves and in our own abilities to fix the problems that face us. And the same tendency does not stop at spiritual matters. Unfortunately, that same tendency to try to fix everything is carried over into our spiritual lives. We want to fix what we see as a problem, but we want to fix it according to our own strength. And in this text, we'll see that Saul, the king of Israel, tried to fix a major problem according to his own human understanding. But the thing is, Scripture never calls us to do this. Instead, the Bible commands us to believe and to rest in Christ, to walk by faith, not by sight. And so the thesis for this sermon is that because God is sovereign, we must trust and obey him. With that introduction, let's read 1 Samuel Chapter 13. So Saul was years old when he began to reign and reigned and two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan 
to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So the first point we're going to look at this morning is a bad situation, verses 1 through 8. So chapter 13 marks the beginning of a new section in the book of 1 Samuel. And this new section runs from the start of 13 all the way through to the end of chapter 15. And each of these three chapters gives us a major way in which King Saul failed, a major blunder by Saul. So while the narrative section of these three chapters are really all one continuous story, obviously we have to break it into parts, otherwise we would be here till almost dinner. So for this morning, we're only concerned with the events we just read in chapter 13. But it is important that you know that it is just the first of Saul's major blunders. And we also need to remember where we left off last week at the end of chapter 12, or really two weeks ago. There, Samuel gave a warning to Israel and Saul that they must fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all their heart. 
Now, if they failed to do this, it will result in Israel and the king being swept away in judgment. So this chapter is all about Saul's first major failure. So what is Saul's first failure and what will it mean for him and for Israel? Those are the big picture questions we need to keep in mind as we walk through this. But before we begin answering that question, there's something else we need to address in verse 1, which depending on your translation, you may have noticed. And you can answer this question. How old was Saul when he began to reign? Any answers? Does your Bible have anything there? One year? All right. How about how long did he reign? Yeah, my guess is most of yours at least have it too. But depending on your translation here, you're going to see different things. So the NIV and so many other versions, they say Saul was 30 when he became king and that he ruled for 42 years. The old NASB says Saul reigned for 32 years. Now, some Bibles, like my ESV, they don't want to make a decision, so they don't put anything. They just leave the number blank and they just have a two for the duration of Saul's reign. Now, we know from what we just read a minute ago in Acts 13.21 that Saul technically reigned for 40 years. And just from common sense about how the world works, that he couldn't have been one year old when his reign began. So the question, what's going on here? Well, one good option is that the writer is being poetic to stress how briefly Saul ruled well under God's direction. And you do need to know that in the Hebrew, it literally says that Saul was son of a year. That's just another way of saying one. All right, so son of a year and two. That's what it says for sure in the Hebrew. So that first option is that this is poetic to explain how brief his reign is. But I think a better option to explain this apparent discrepancy is that it took Saul a first year after being anointed king to actually take up the throne. You may have caught this over previous weeks of going through this book. Paul had been, or Saul had been declared king publicly, but it took him at least a full year to actually act like a king. And then the two-year reign in this view refers to how many years he was the legitimate king over Israel. Notice that word, legitimate. Because by the end of chapter 15, Saul is going to be formally rejected by God as king. Now, he continues to act as king, but he became an illegitimate one, and thus the crown legitimately passes on to David. So that's how we're going to summarize this for now. If you have more questions about that, you can ask me after the service. But moving along swiftly away from textual debates. In verse 2, we see Saul's eldest son, Jonathan, enter into the story. And interestingly, the author provides no background on Jonathan at all, no description Nothing. He just throws his name out like you know who he is already. When Saul was introduced, we got a description of his lineage and of his appearance. Saul was described emphatically as tall and as handsome. But Jonathan receives absolutely no description of appearance or character. And all we can say initially is that the name Jonathan means Yahweh has given. That's all we've got at this point. So the only way, moving forward, which we are able to judge his character is by his actions in the coming chapters. So how will he compare to, say, his father Saul? Will he just be a copy of his dad, a mini Saul? Well, as we move on in this text, we see in verses 2 through 3 that Jonathan was of military age. So he was at least 20 at this point. 
But since he also led a thousand men, he had to have been at least closer to 30. And that also may be a hint that he was a good leader of men, that he was able to lead a thousand men. And we see this confirmed in verse 3. When Jonathan went and he successfully defeated the major Philistine outpost at Geba. And if we stop and think about that for a moment, that Jonathan takes this outpost, it's rather shocking. Way back in chapter 10, Samuel anoints Saul as king. Then he directed him to go directly across from the same Philistine outpost at Geba. Saul was told by Samuel that at that moment the Spirit of God would rush upon him and he was to do what his hands found to do. That's what the text said. So most commentators agree that Samuel was telling Saul to attack and take that same Philistine outpost at Geba way back in chapter 10. And once he took that outpost, he was to go to Gilgal, wait for seven days for Samuel. But Saul went near Geba, and he never took it. Saul just went home. He just said, no, I'm going to go home now. So now we see, moving forward, that his son Jonathan, not Saul, ends up taking Geba and forcing Saul's hand. So they go to the natural next step, now that Jonathan has forced the confrontation. They all gather at Gilgal in order to assemble together and to wait for Samuel so that they can face this Philistine threat. So not only did Jonathan do what his father was unwilling or even incapable of doing, but he did so with less men and seemingly on his own initiative. So it seemed from the outset that Jonathan, Jonathan has some decisive leadership skills which his father Saul seems to lack. Through his actions, Saul, his father, was able to claim victory for Israel and to begin assembling the people for battle. But then there was a problem after this victory. Unsurprisingly, the Philistines were not very happy about losing a major outpost that helped them control Israel. And Israel was essentially under their control at this point. In the Philistines' eyes, the Israelites were were rebelling And they had to be crushed. They had to be put down. And so they assembled. They gathered their army together, and it was an impressive army. We're told that they had 30,000 chariots. Of course, that was just the chariots, which were like kind of the special operations shot soldiers of the day. So many foot soldiers came with them that Israel couldn't even count them. Meanwhile, how many men did Saul and Jonathan have put together? They had 3,000 men. Do you see a problem there? Well, Saul certainly did see a problem. Saul knew that he was completely outmatched on the field of battle, and unfortunately so did his men, too. They were cowering before the Philistines. They were trembling with fear. So while, of course, the army, the enemy army, was the main problem, it was not the only one going on in this passage. In the face of this overwhelming enemy force, men were deserting Saul at an alarming rate. They were running. Things were going from bad to worse quickly. And to top it all off, Samuel had not arrived yet like he said he would. So the enemy army is fearsome. Yours is not. You've waited the seven days appointed by God's prophet for God's prophet, and he's nowhere to be seen. And so, you know, somewhat understandably, Saul is absolutely panicking. A battle was coming, and neither he nor his army had been blessed by God. 
Furthermore, he had no instructions on what to do in the battle to come. So a solution had to be found or they were all done for. So the questions, what will the solution be and who will bring about that solution? That brings us into point two. A human solution, verses 9 through the first part of 15. So there were two possible options for Saul at this point. First, he could have trusted that God was in control. And if he did so, he could patiently wait and pray and plead with God to help and rescue them. He could also wait patiently for Samuel to arrive. Or second, he could try to take control of the situation through his own efforts. And unfortunately, Saul chose the second of the two options. He saw the danger of the threat, he panicked, and he chose to try to solve things on his own, by his own strength. So he took things into his own hands and either made this burnt offering himself, or what is more likely, he had his priests do it on his orders, because there would have been priests with him. He would have continued to the peace offering as well, had Samuel not been spotted arriving at Gilgal. So halfway through these morning sacrifices, Saul leaves to meet Samuel outside the city out of respect. And right away, we see that Saul wanted to pretend that everything was okay, that everything was going just fine. He went and he greeted Samuel. He probably offered niceties and a welcome. But you may have noticed Samuel wasn't really having any of that. Instead, he says, what have you done? Now, notice he was not asking if. Saul had done something wrong. His question was a stinging accusation of sin with an exclamation point on the end. Not a question mark. So again, Saul has two options here at being rebuked. First, he could repent and beg for forgiveness. And if there was true repentance from the heart, God likely would have shown mercy and grace on Saul. Or second, Saul could try and defend his actions as justified. Once again, Saul chose the worst of the two options and decided to try to deflect the blame. So like Adam and Eve before him, before him, he tried to pass the buck, pass the blame. And he blames three things. First, he blamed the people for abandoning the army and fleeing. These unruly Israelites, they're impossible. Second, he blamed Samuel for being late. He said, you did not come within the days Appointed. Now, the you in the Hebrew is emphatic. It is highlighting that Saul is outright blaming God's prophet Samuel for these events. How about you? That seems like a bold move to me. And the third thing is that Saul blamed the imminent attack of the Philistine army. Now, were all three of these things actually problems? Absolutely, they were. But there is never a valid excuse for disobedience. There is nothing in this world that can make you sin. In Saul's mind, the problem behind everything is that he had not sought the favor of the Lord. Now, at first glance, that might not seem like a bad thing to be concerned about. If you're going to do anything, you want God's favor upon you. You want his blessing upon you, right? Of course you do. Saul's solution to this problem was to force himself to make this burnt offering. Now, some people read that and they assume that what the text is saying is that Saul went against his conscience in making this offering. 
That's actually not really what this phrase means. It means that Saul had a tough choice to make, and he acted like a man and did it. It's more of that kind of thing. So that phrase by itself, it's not enough to condemn Saul. But then we go to Samuel's response. And Samuel's response is more than enough to determine if Saul understood God's favor in the right way. So after hearing Saul's excuses and what he did, Samuel made an immediate determination. He said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Saul had failed to obey the word of God to him, and thus everything he did to try to solve the problem was going to be a failure. Dr. Jim Neuheiser says this about it. He says he sees his army breaking up and determines that this emergency justifies violating God's word, believing that it is better to offend God than to lose followers. His mistake goes back to his misunderstanding of what it means to seek the favor of the Lord. Saul's understanding of how to attain the favor of the Lord for battle was completely off track. And we can see this in three ways in the text. First, Saul was a man who was introduced in this book with this description of being tall and being handsome. Saul looked the part of a mighty king. Israel didn't care about the godliness of Saul when he was anointed and declared king, only whether or not he could fight. And Saul appears to mirror the desires of the Israelites. After all, Saul was the king they had asked for according to their sinful desires. But there was a major issue with Saul. He may have looked the part according to human eyes, but spiritually he was lethargic at best. So the people asked for Saul while walking by sight, not by faith. And now we see that Saul is walking by sight. And not by faith. And he even admits this to Samuel in verse 11 while trying to defend himself. He did what he did because he was relying on his physical sight. Men were dispersing. The enemy was dangerous and Samuel wasn't there yet. But Saul was not meant to be a pagan king relying on human means, but Yahweh's servant king. He was not trusting that God had a plan or could rescue Israel in this situation. He didn't believe that the Lord was sovereign over his situation. So he decided to take it on himself, try to rescue Israel through his strength, because his spiritual eyes were dimmed. That's the first way. The second way in which Saul sought the favor of the Lord wrongly was that he saw God as a cosmic genie. In his mind, it was not about walking by faith and communing with the Lord. Saul had actually become a ritualistic legalist. In his heart, he did not believe that God's favor came through faith and through obedience. The way to make sure you have victory from God is to ceremonially cross all your T's and dot all your I's. In Saul's mind, offering a sacrifice would hire out God's favor for the coming battle, as well as look good in front of a scared army that needed encouragement. So once again, Saul is concerned with the externals but not with the heart. And the third and most severe mistake Saul made was that he directly and explicitly disobeyed God's word. Now, some believe that the disobedience was just in offering the sacrifice as a king when he was not a priest. But as you go forward through First and Second Samuel, you'll see that David and Solomon also offered sacrifices at times, 
And they were not rebuked. And it's almost certain that David, Solomon, and Saul had priests with them that at least assisted or performed these sacrifices for them. So I don't think that's the main problem here. Back in chapter 10, Samuel said when the outpost was taken at Geba to go to Gilgal and wait seven days for Samuel to arrive. And this Saul more or less did. But he became impatient and he failed to obey the rest of chapter 10, verse 7. And what it says there, what Samuel, God's prophet, said there is, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So the issue was not that it was impossible for a king to offer a sacrifice or even to assist in offering on occasion. The problem is that Saul was specifically commanded in this exact situation to wait for Samuel to come and make the offering and to receive further instructions on what to do next. He had direct revelation from God, commanding him to wait for God's mediator to intercede and provide revelation for the coming battle. But Saul chose instead to take matters into his own hands because his fear of man was greater than his fear of the Lord. This was not a trivial sin on Saul's part, but it really showed that the state of his heart was wrong before God. And the result was willful and irreverent disobedience. And when we understand the severity of Saul's failure, the strong words of Samuel make more sense. The judgment on this sin is that his dynasty will end. There will be no dynasty for Saul. He will not be the first over a long line of kings in Israel. His heart and his actions have been weighed and they've been found wanting by God. Now, Samuel's words didn't mean that Saul would lose the kingdom that day, but one thing for certain is that Jonathan would never take the throne. Already, God had chosen another man to take his place. So his rejection and the selection of another was entirely Saul's fault as a result of his sin. And we can summarize Saul's reign with Romans 14.23. And it says, For whatever does not proceed from fate is sin. Saul did a lot of things that from the outside looked all right, but they were not done in faith, and therefore they were empty and they were sinful. And we have to note how this encounter between Samuel and Saul ends. There's a complete lack of sorrow or repentance from Saul. We don't even have a reaction recorded at all. Then Samuel up and leaves without offering the peace offering. He left without offering the peace offering. And I think the message there is clear. Saul's dynasty will never have peace. There are, the sacrifices also summarize Saul's reign well. You see, he started well in many ways, but there was something huge missing behind everything he did. He may have done some things all right, but he didn't finish any of them in faith. Saul was focused on getting the externals done, but there was no internal faith to match those external actions. And so because of that, his reign was doomed from the start. Now we go to the final point, point three. So this point's labeled an even worse situation, 15 through the end of the chapter. So in this last point, I want you to understand the outcome 
of Saul's disobedience and how it sets the stage for the battle to come in chapter 14. <coughs> Excuse me. Samuel provided God's evaluation for Saul's actions already. But now we see that the Israelites' appraisal of Saul's actions are actually not much better. Between Saul and Jonathan, they began with 3,000 men. And a call had even gone out for more men to gather together with the army. And yet after this blunder, Saul, ever concerned with looking at events through worldly eyes, he again does a count of his men. How many men does he have now? 600, 20% of his original force. He tried to fix this problem on his own by forcing himself and disobeying God. And now things are even worse. He has a tiny and a terrified army that is lacking God's blessing and lacking any divine guidance. Meanwhile, the enemy army has not decreased in size. They had so many troops that they could have a huge army encamped and send out three large raiding parties, which undoubtedly each one of those was larger than Israel's entire army at this point. And they were cutting off roads, they were capturing strategic points, and they were pinching the whole Israelite army. But not only that, the Philistines were armed with the best weaponry of the day, while Israel lacked any normal weapons of the day. Among all the warriors of Israel, only Saul and Jonathan were equipped with proper weapons. Now, Philistia at this point had essentially enforced, uh, I don't know, the lack of a better term, so gun control on Israel to prevent them from gaining the tools necessary to rebel in war. If you wanted anything metal or wanted anything metal repaired, you had to go to the Philistines, pay an outrageous amount of money for a blacksmith in Philistia to mend it or make it for you. The Philistines had geographically, economically, and militarily dominated the Israelites into submission. So according to human eyes, if you look at things with only worldly eyes, Israel is completely doomed. And unfortunately, that seems to be how Saul looked at the situation as well, instead of looking through eyes of faith. He was relying on human strength and on numbers, despite having seen God perform mighty miracles in his lifetime. He also knew Israel's history well. That God had destroyed much larger armies with fewer men. But Saul was stuck. He was stuck in his legalism and he was stuck in his sense of self-sufficiency. And that's perhaps the biggest irony in all of this. Saul sought victory through ceremony and his own ability while rejecting the word of God, the one thing that could have actually helped him achieve victory. It's very similar to the Pharisees and how they sought to earn salvation through the filthy rags of their own efforts. And Saul here was just as much of a legalist because he thought salvation, rescue, would come through actions and rituals rather than faith and obedience. Here we see where Saul begins to serve as a foil for David, who is mentioned indirectly for the first time in this book. Unlike Saul, David is a man after God's own heart. Unlike Saul, David loved the law of God. He understood that victory came through faith, not through sight. And in this way, he also serves as a picture of the Messiah to come. Jesus said in Hebrews 10:7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then Matthew 5:17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. So looking at redemption with the eyes of the world cannot ever understand or grasp the truth. Walking by sight cannot comprehend how the Son of God could humiliate himself by taking on flesh and entering into his own creation. Worldly vision cannot understand how victory can come through a crucifixion. Nor can unregenerate eyes see the church for what it is or for what it is becoming. The eyes of the sinner cannot understand or be concerned with the fact that the true King Jesus is coming back soon. In every way and in every test, walking by sight fails. And so the encouragement of this passage for you is to examine your heart to see if you're walking by faith or by sight. As we go to the Lord and his word and faith, we will be able to determine if we are trusting in the filth of our own efforts. Or on the other end of the spectrum, if we have made grace cheap as we stop caring about sin or its evil. Legalism cannot save you any more than license can. Only by faith can you please your heavenly Father. Only through faith will you be able to clearly see what God is doing in your life and in the life of the church. And even when you cannot understand what God is doing in your life, walking by faith is the only thing that can provide you hope when everything seems to be crumbling. It is through eyes of faith that we can look at this crumbling world and still have hope. Only in Christ can we look at the church that through worldly eyes is battered and hemmed in on every side by its enemies and see the militant church conquering through Christ and through his spirit. So in one sense, it doesn't even really matter where you are today because whether you feel like you're failing, whether you are lonely, whether you're weighed down by the difficulties of this life, perhaps your faith is just weak, feels like it's hanging on by a thread. The answer to all of those problems becomes the same. You go to Jesus in faith, you wait on the Lord, and you ask for eyes of faith to see clearly. He's your life, he's your hope, your resurrection, and your future glory. And the promise of the gospel of Christ is that Christ who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Now this promise, it's not for the self-righteous, it's not for the self-sufficient, it's for those who walk by faith. So for those who are resting in Christ, here's the final word from 1 Thessalonians 5.24. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that though we are so often faithless, and though we so often fail and want to trust in our own legalistic or uh, just bad tendencies, that you are faithful. That you who have called us will not let us go. That you who carry us every day will see that our salvation is completed and that we are glorified with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your hand is upon us for good. We give praise to you this morning because of it. In your name. Amen.